Good morning, everybody. My name is Jim. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jim. Uh, <laughs> glad to be in Springfield, Missouri this morning. I uh, must be an older group here this morning. I get to attend a few of these things from time to time, and what I'm introduced is Jim Beam. Uh, I can always tell the average age of the crowd. <laughs> I get to some of these conferences where there's a lot of young people, you know. But they can't snort it or stuff it or stick it in their arm or something. They don't know what the hell Jim Beam is, you know. <laughs> but I'm glad to be here. I'd like to thank the committee, Wayne and Wayne and Lois and everybody, for inviting me to come down here and share my wussy story with you. I, uh, <clears throat> it's a pleasure, it's an honor, it's a privilege to be asked to come and share, and I hope that sometime in the future each one of you get to do this, stand up here and look out the eyes of the, the body of Alcoholics Anonymous, the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and see the people, see the, see the faces looking back at you. It's just, it's always a spiritual experience to me to stand up here and look at you looking back at me. The theme of this thing is miracles do happen. And there's about four or five hundred miracles in this room this morning, and uh, I congratulate you all. I'm glad you're here. Uh, Chuck, the young man who did his fifth step on the way up here Friday, asked me this morning if I was nervous about speaking. I don't get nervous about speaking. I get nervous about who's going to pick me up at the airport. <laughs> they always pick out a sick one. <laughs> You don't have to leave, Bill. I'm not going to be that bad. <laughs> they sent me a black kamikaze pilot. <laughs> uh, this guy. Nice fella. Dorothy and Diane were with him. Did you see Di Diane's uh, Mr. T's starter kit she's wearing this morning? <laughs> uh, Sammy Davis Jr. had come back reincarnate. <laughs> Usually the speaker picker-upper has a about a 1965 Dodge Omni or something. A window missing. But... Uh, Bill had a nice car, a very nice car. He missed his off-ramp <laughs> to the hotel. I mean, illegal U-turn almost killed us all. <laughs> but uh, we got here, and everything's fine. It's been a nice conference. I've uh, enjoyed every all the participants up this point. I like to speak on Sunday morning because then I get to talk about them. And uh, good, good message, don't you think? All of them shared, shared uh, very well from the heart from their experiences, from their opinions. They've all had a good time. I've been with them all weekend, and they all enjoy doing this as much as I do, I'm sure. Uh, Don and Susan had the uh, bridal suite with the mirror with the mirror over the bed. Uh, I heard that Al-Anons Al traditionally make love with their eyes closed because uh, they can't stand to see an alcoholic having fun. And... Uh, I overheard, uh, I overheard Diane say that uh, yesterday she'd be glad to get home so she can get some sleep. Uh, 
<coughs> but it's been a good time. It's a, we are most fortunate, those of us who are invited to do this thing, because we meet the speakers from the other parts of the country. I always, when I'm invited to come and share, I take home a great deal, because uh, as I am honored to be asked, I am also in the company of people who carry the message well, and these folks have done it. Marguerite gave an excellent talk yesterday, and uh, Gary last night was probably much more spiritual than I will be. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> it's just been a good conference, and I've certainly gained a lot from it. I am a wuss. I am a sissy. I am not a macho, tough alcoholic. I do not have one of those stories which includes prison records and 40 years of drinking and eight continents and wives scattered all over the country and scars and tattoos. I am a mommy's boy. I, uh... <clears throat> I am growing this beard in one last attempt to be a man. Uh... I just moved to Nebraska, and uh, somebody said that in Nebraska, real men grow a beard for the winter. So I'm going to give it a try. <laughs> Are there any, uh, how many people in the audience have uh, less than six months of sobriety? Hold up your hand. All right, welcome. <laughs> you are most fortunate to be here. We're glad you're here. We, are, uh, <laughs> we welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. Those of you who just held up your hand and those of you who didn't, we know who you are anyway. <laughs> yeah. Newcomers look like a dog out on the interstate. <laughs> just, uh, it's going to be all right. I grew up in a small farming community in Southern California and uh, had a neat childhood. I never have felt different and apart from. When I was a kid, I had a perfect childhood. I had a loving mother, kind of a Harriet Nelson type. She didn't work, stayed home, cooked, baked, and uh, I hung out with mom. My dad was something of a drunk and unpredictable, so I avoided him, but I hung out with mom a lot, and if you hang out with mom, you learn to bake and cook and clean and run the dishwasher, not dishwasher, we didn't have dishwasher, but run the washing machine and iron clothes and stuff like that. I learned how to do all that stuff. Hell, I could remove yellow wax buildup from the kitchen floor, you know. <laughs> and I didn't have a problem with that. I didn't uh, feel different and apart from. I've heard speakers say that they felt different and like they were adopted. I heard a guy say that he felt like someday a spaceship would land in the backyard and say, Bill, time to go home, you know. Uh, I had a good childhood. I cannot... My alcoholism is was not, I can't blame it on my parents, okay? I, I have alcoholism by consumption, is what I have. <laughs> but I had a good childhood. I loved mom, and I loved, uh, I loved that yellow kitchen that we had, and I spent a lot of time in there, and I learned to bake and cook and do all that stuff. By the time I was 10 years old, I could put a complete meal on the, on the dining room table, all of it hot and steaming at the right time. I didn't have a problem with that. I had other little sissy friends that I ran around with, and, uh, you know, we shared recipes and built model airplanes. And, uh, <clears throat> we played Monopoly, and we just uh, built model airplanes, and, 
did stuff like that. I, I didn't, uh, I wasn't on the football team. I was briefly, but uh, I was the water boy, you know. Uh, I didn't raise a steer, you know. I was in camera club and glee club, and I wanted to be in home economics, but when I was a kid, they wouldn't let boys in home economics. I almost cried. I, uh, I had a lot of stuff to share in home ec. And uh, everything was fine. I, uh, I went through puberty, which is a hideous process. I'd probably still be in that kitchen if that hadn't happened. But I grew up. <clears throat> and I got drunk the first time in high school like most of us did. I uh, went to one of these house parties. That somebody's parents were out of town, and the big older kids, the seniors, brought in the booze. And uh, uh, I went to this thing. I'd had a few sips of mom's beer along the way, probably, but I'd never been drunk. And I, I went to this deal with my older brother, and I went walked into that house. I was... Uh, 16 years old, about to be 17. I was six feet tall. I weighed 118 pounds. They called me stick, you know, slim, skinny. I was just a nerd. I had freckles. I had goofy hair. I just had a squeaky voice. I was shy. I was terrified of girls. I was terrified of football players. I was terrified of the class leaders. I was just, my little wimpy friends weren't at this deal, you know, and I walked in there just a mess. Somebody handed me a beer, and I was familiar with beer. I tasted beer, so I drank that beer, and somebody handed me another one, or I got another one. I drank that beer, and I got another one probably, and somewhere along there, I switched to screwdrivers, and uh, I started to gain weight. <laughs> In the next half an hour, I probably gained 50 pounds. <laughs> My hair got long and dark and curly and laid down just right. My freckles fell off, and my voice dropped down and got dulcet and sexy. And the more I drank, the better looking I got. And I walked over and asked this girl to dance, and I didn't bother me that I had never danced before. She stood up and said, sure, and I looked around at what the other kids were doing, and I got out there and did what we did in the 50s, gyrating around to blue suede shoes, and uh, had a good time, and... Uh, Danced a couple other dances, and pretty soon I wandered out in the kitchen. My big brother and the football players were all standing around the kitchen sink, passing a bottle of whiskey around. And uh, I was trying to get by them, probably go to the bathroom or get another beer or something out of the fridge. And Chuck, the captain of the football team, this guy looked like the Tasmanian devil. He had no no neck, you know, just a hulking big guy. He had arms that were the size of my legs, and uh, he terrified me. And this big guy caught me. He put one of his arms out, grabbed me, and pulled me into that circle of these guys and said, how you doing, kid? I almost wet my pants. <laughs> and they handed me this bottle of whiskey, and I took a drink out of it and passed it around, and somebody handed me a cigarette, and all of a sudden, I was with the guys. I was with the toughs and the leaders of the classes and the, the guys who were lettermen and the guys who were cool and slick. Some of these guys were already growing a mustache, and one of them had a tattoo, and they had cigarettes rolled up in the sleeve of their T-shirt, and I was right in there with them, you know? They were telling jokes, and I was laughing at their jokes. Uh, I told a joke. They either laughed at me or laughed at my joke. I don't know which, but I was at one with the guys, and I went back out in the living room, and I started giving dancing lessons to people, you know? <laughs> in a space of about 45 minutes, the transformation was complete, and I felt like they looked. And I didn't know I was different until I fit in with them. I had no fear. 
I wasn't skinny and goopy and weird anymore. I wasn't frightened anymore. I was, I was hip, slick, and cool. And I loved it. And I drank that night with reckless abandon. I know at one point my big brother tried to make me moderate or stop altogether because he knew Skinny was going to start puking pretty soon. <laughs> but, uh, so I was, uh, I had to drink your drink. You know, if you set your drink down and went out to dance, you came back to an empty drink. You know, if you turned your back on it for a minute, I drank it. You know, I drank drinks, cigarette butts and all. You know? <clears throat> Because I liked what booze had done for me, as Gary said last night. And I wanted more of it. Well, if you're skinny, you're 118 pounds, and you're not accustomed to drinking, and before you went to the party, you ate six chocolate brownies from your secret recipe, and you put beer and scotch and brandy and screwdrivers and real gin and slow gin on top of those brownies, you puke a vile-smelling green slime <clears throat> without notice. I was talking to somebody, and I just... <laughs> Surprised us both, huh? <laughs> they got me out in the backyard, and I didn't stop puking for an hour. I was out there writhing around on the wet grass in the backyard, puking and rolling in it. It was just hideous. I couldn't stop this fountain of green vial. It was just everywhere. I got to my feet one time and slipped in it and fell right back in it. It was horrible. And all of these girls and football players and all of the guys were now in a circle watching me. <clears throat> My big brother got the garden hose <laughs> and hosed the kid down in an attempt to clean me up and sober me up. And they did something with me that night. I don't know where we spent the night, but he hid me somewhere because he couldn't take me home to mom and dad, I'll tell you. On Monday, I went back to school. On Monday, I was six feet tall and 118 pounds with freckles and a squeaky voice and goofy hair. Who was afraid of girls and football players. And I know somewhere during the recovery process of that weekend, I swore off forever with or without a Solomon. I know because I was sick all day Saturday and I didn't feel so hot on Sunday. And I know that somewhere in that 16-year-old mind, I knew that alcohol had put me in that condition to be humiliated in front of all of them guys and girls, and had contributed to my sickness. And I must have said, I don't recall saying it, but I must have sworn off. I must have said, Jesus Christ, I will never do that again. That was horrible. That was embarrassing. It was painful. It was humiliating. It was awful. And I will never, ever drink again. But something happened for me, and I believe it happened for every real alcoholic in this room. Some little message was recorded in my subconscious or in my conscious or somewhere in that gray matter that indelible recording was made that for about an hour, I was okay. For an hour, I was complete and whole. For an hour, I had absolutely no fear of anything. For an hour, I was slick. For an hour, I was handsome to the girls. For an hour, I was a football player. For an hour, I was somebody. And that little recording is still back there. I'm 52 years old, and that recording is still back there. 
And that little recording still plays today from time to time when you're after me. When I've done something that I don't want to admit. When I've gotten myself into some situation that is just unacceptable to mankind. When I've broken a law or I've done some moral, immoral act or I've, I just get the, the whips and the jingles. That little recording play. There's something out there that'll take this fear away. There's something out there that'll make you feel okay today for an hour or two or an afternoon. And it's available over the counter without a prescription. And you're old enough to buy it and you got the money for the startup in your money clip. You can go get some of that stuff and push them away for an hour or two or an afternoon or a night. And I was, I didn't, you know, 16 years old, buy me a wine jug and go to Skid Row. For the next 15 years, though, I didn't set out to do the horrendous things that I was to do. I didn't set out to become the unmanly, immoral, perverted, illegal, terrible young man and later man that I was to become. I didn't set out to let people down and hurt people and burn them off and rip them off and rape them and molest them and, and malign them and, and assassinate them. I didn't set off to break every moral code that my mother had taught me. I didn't set out to break all the commandments that I could think of to break. And I did all those things over the next 15 years as, as alcohol used me and I used it. For a long time, alcohol was a social elixir. It made parties partier. It made fun funnier. It made sadness sadder. You know, when I wanted to be sad, I could drink and just cry. You know, in a dark room alone, you know. Smoking cigarettes, listen to country and western songs. That's good, you know. Yeah. Now the world would be better off without me. I just drank. I drank because it, it was the same reason I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, to feel better. And for a long time, alcohol worked like magic. It was just wonderful. It was just neat. You see, there was a different set of values happened when I drank than happened when I was sober. A couple of examples might be, oh, after I married my first wife and I was in my early 20s and a couple of kids and I'm just a, just an average guy. I'm a clerk down at the bank and I, I'm drinking martini lunches from time to time with the guys with their neckties and I'm going to country club once in a while, and I look average and normal to everybody around me. Nobody knows I'm alcoholic. I don't know I'm alcoholic. But you see, there's a funny thing that happens when I go to the market with my wife and one of the kids in the basket, and we buy $80 worth of groceries, and I got $50 in my bank account. When I go up to the checkout to write that check for $80, there's a series of alarms that go off in my head, a series of things that happen inside of me. When I whip open that checkbook and look at that register, and I got 50 bucks in the bank, and I got to write a check for 84.75 for the groceries. And the first one says, "You failure." The little men in my head get together and they say, "Jesus Christ, you're nothing. You are just terrible. Look at you. You only got you're 27 years old. You got a you're uh, an officer of the bank, and you're writing a hot check at the market. You know, the check's drawn on your bank, dummy. What are you going to do if this bank gets a this check gets to the bank before you get paid tomorrow or the day after, you know. It wasn't that I was going to burn the market. I just had to beat that check to the bank somehow, you know. And all of these things would go off in my head. What a, what a no good I was. What a failure I represented. You who's leaning on the light switch. Thank you. Uh, turn off those lights over there. Don't turn off my light. 
Humility and how I achieved it, I'll cover in a minute. Oh. Now I forgot where the hell I was. I have to start over. Oh, we're in the market writing this, this check. And it's not a big deal to the average person, but to me, it epitomizes all the rotten things that I am. If I hadn't, you know, spent that 20 bucks on booze yesterday, if I hadn't, you know, if I managed my money better, if I if I had a savings like everybody else, I could transfer money from savings to checking to cover this, and just all of this crap happens in that few minutes that I'm writing out that check. But if I have three martinis in me, I don't even look at the register. I don't care how much money I've got in the bank. None of these alarms go off. In fact, I'll say to the clerk, I'm going to make this for $25 extra. That'd be all right, won't it, you know? <laughs> If I've got the right number of martinis in me and you're willing to take my check, it's your problem, not mine. If I'm sober and I uh, find some lovely young thing who's in need of counseling and I slide off into the Shady Tree Motel at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday, there's a certain bunch of alarms go off in my head. Jesus, you're committing adultery. What the hell is wrong with you? You know, why are you doing this? What if you get caught? What if your wife finds out about this? What if her husband finds out about this? What if she gets pregnant? What if you catch a disease? What, why are you such an immoral pervert? What the hell is wrong with you? Jesus Christ, get out of here. Don't do this. All of this stuff goes off in my head if I'm sober. But if I've had the right number of martinis, <laughs> it's not my fault. It's my wife's fault. If she were a better lover, I wouldn't have to do this. It's this girl's husband's fault. I'm having to do his job. Huh? There's five women to every man. It's my responsibility. Huh? It's a victimless crime. It's a dumb commandment. Whole different set of rules apply. I like the drinking rules better. <laughs> Who wants to feel guilty all the time? Who wants to feel like an immoral leper? Who wants to feel like a failure? If I can keep the right number of martinis in me, I'm okay and you're okay. And that's why I drank. Because it took away the terror. It took away the insecurity. It took away the feeling of uselessness. It took away the feeling of, of imperfection. And I drank. By the end of my drinking career, I'm a neighborhood bar drinker. Neighborhood bar. Not a country western bar drinker. I avoid places with pool tables and shuffleboards. You can get hurt in them places. <laughs> Where do they wear these hats that several of the fellas are wearing here today? These cowboy hats? Don't go in there with a necktie on. Yeah. But I'm a neighborhood bar. I like to go in a neighborhood bar where they have a friendly bartender and a jukebox in the corner and a barmaid and some kind of velvet on the walls and just, you know, soft music in the background and I get on my stool at the end of the bar where I can see myself in the back bar mirror, put my back against the wall so I can see the whole room. Nobody can get behind me. And I spent the last year of my drinking on that stool in some bar looking at myself in that back bar mirror trying to figure out what the hell happened. 
How did I get to be 29 years old and such a failure in every area of my life? Why am I sitting here spending the rent money on booze? I should be out making them calls. I've been thrown out of the banking industry by now, and I'm selling things to bank and sa banks in San Francisco area, calling on all these banks. I'm supposed to be out calling on these people and selling them forms and check systems and stuff, and I can't do it. I pull up in front of these big, ominous green buildings and say, shit, they're not buying anything today, and I go on by. <laughs> yeah. They don't like me in that one. I'm gonna, I'll get them next week, you know. And I pull into one of these slop shoots and I sat there and I put whatever money I got up on the bar and the bartender knows I don't want to roll the dice. He knows I don't want to talk. I don't want to tell him my troubles. I don't want to hear his. I don't want to goose the barmaid. I don't want to play the jukebox. I don't want to take off my shirt and dance with the top of dancers anymore. I just want to be left alone. Keep that drink full. Take that money. Don't talk to me while I figure this out. And I make senseless notes on bar napkins. You find them the next day in your pockets, you know. Columns of figures, people's names, addresses, gibberish, you know. But I would sit there all afternoon trying to figure out, how in the hell did I get to be such a failure? How did I get to be such a miserable human being? Why am I such, in such a financial disaster all the time? This isn't what I set out to do. I'm my mommy's little boy. I'm 28, 29 years old. I should be soon to be a president of some major banking corporation by now or high up on that executive ladder towards success. I should have the White House and the picket fence, and I got this wife and these two kids, and I can't stand them. I can't stand to be around them. She's a cold fish. The kids are neurotic. Uh, the, ca the house is cold. The, the car is not what it should be. Jesus, I, how did it get to be like this? This isn't what I set out to do. And I stayed there. I would think, Jesus, this is the rent money. I should take this money, put it in my pocket, go home so we can pay the rent or the car payment or buy the groceries or do whatever. And the only way I could leave that bar that afternoon was when that money was gone. When the bartender would say, what do you want to do now, Slick? And I'd look up, the money would be gone. You know? And I'd go write a check someplace or somehow acquire a bottle to sit and <laughs> near the end of your drink. And I don't know if you did this, but I did. Uh, I'd get a bottle and I would go set, park that car in some picturesque spot, you know, overlooking the bridge, you know, Golden Gate Bridge, some beautiful place up in Marin County. Or I'd go, if I was in my old neighborhood, I'd go sit across the street from the house where everything used to be good, you know, where she now lives <laughs> with him, you know, something, and listen to those sad songs on the radio and cry and contemplate suicide. No, it was just a mess. But eventually I'd have to go home and explain my whereabouts to her and, and why I didn't have the money for, for my paycheck or, you know, whatever. And somehow, <laughs> this girl back here, is having a spiritual experience. <laughs> Doing the light show for all of us. <clears throat> but somehow I'd have to suck it in and clean it up and put it together and go back out there the next day to do it all over again. And I didn't know alcohol was a problem. I didn't know alcohol had anything to do with it. Alcohol was still my solution. Alcohol was still the only thing. It didn't make it party time anymore. It didn't make me sexy and better looking. But it graded out. It pushed them back. It allowed me to be in a little cubicle all by myself while I could think and figure. Alcoholics don't really think. They figure. You know, and I sat there and tried to figure it out. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because I came to in a jail cell. I came to in a jail cell in San Rafael, California, looking out through the bars, and I couldn't recall being arrested. And I, I just sat there on the floor, and I puked all over my pants. My necktie was gone, and my shirt was open, and... My jacket had been my pillow, I guess. It was wadded up in the corner. And I just sat there looking out through them bars. And I couldn't recall. How in the hell did Mrs. Beam's little boy wind up like this? 
You know, I'm not a convict. I'm not a bad man. I have never willfully and knowingly hurt anybody or anything in my life. How can I be in jail, for Christ's sake? And to kind of fast forward this thing, I was in the drunk tank, and they kicked me out at 6 o'clock in the morning. I, I went home, and I lied to her about where I had been, and got the car out of impounds, and and uh, drove into San Francisco, and I looked up Alcoholics Anonymous in the telephone directory. And I don't know where I got that. Some five years before, I had been in group therapy. You ever been to group therapy? <laughs> well, what a waste of time that is, you know? All I did was seduce the women in my group, you know, <clears throat> my racy drinking stories and bullshit. But I had been in group, and this guy who led my group gave me the 20 questions. I was still a big deal at the bank. Then I was an operations officer and about 13 girls and couple guys working for me. I, I took my 20 questions to the bar, my bartender, and I checked that off that night. Erased our answers. The next day, I called a staff meeting and made copies of this 20 questions, passed it out, made my entire staff take the 20 questions. <laughs> then I made a joke of it, threw it away. I've often wondered that someplace in this country, there isn't some girl standing at a podium, sharing like I am this morning, at her home group meeting. I said, the first time I saw the 20 questions, this drunken boss of mine called a staff meeting. <laughs> and it said on there that you're an alcoholic. We didn't say much about Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, so I came to this central office in San Francisco. I walked in unannounced without an appointment, just walked into this deal. Somewhere I'd heard enough about AA, you know, it had something to do with people who drank too much. And I went in there, and this big, tall, skinny girl named Alice came out of a side office. It seemed to me she leaped over the coffee table, <laughs> grinned from ear to ear, stuck her skinny hand out, and said, Hi, I'm Alice. I'm an alcoholic. I thought, you weirdo. <laughs> another girl come out of another office. I think her name was Betty, a little chubby gal. And she says, Hi, I'm Betty. I'm alcoholic. And these two broads stand there grinning at me. Obviously delighted to be alcoholics. <laughs> and they want to know if I was one. Hell, I don't know if I'm one. That's what I'm here to find out if I'm one. They introduced me to Paul Gardner, who's now dead. And uh, he was the new manager of Central Office in San Francisco. Just been there a few months. I thought he was the president of AA. And that's who I wanted to talk to. The top dog, you know. Get my information and get out of there. And I went into Paul's office, and he sat at that big oak desk, and I tried and tried and tried to find out if I was alcoholic. Every time I asked Paul about my drinking, he told me about his. Now, this old fool has a hearing problem. <laughs> I'd say to him, if I just drink beer, can I be an alcoholic? And he'd laugh and tell me how much beer he used to drink. And I said to him at one point, if an individual can't remember. I mean, he was someplace, and people tell him he was there, and he was alive and talking and walking and stuff, and an individual can't recall having done these things. Does that have something to do with drinking? He laughed. He thought that's a funny thing. It allowed him to tell me about a two-week blackout he had been in, you know? <laughs> he had deserted his wife and family in South Dakota and come to in San Diego a week and a half later. 
He thought that's the funniest thing he'd ever done, you know? <laughs> Evidently, I was confused and couldn't figure out where he was coming from, and I shut up, and it enabled him to start telling me things that men don't tell men. He started telling me immoral, perverted, terrible, illegal things he had done to himself and his family. And the worse they were, the funnier he thought they were. I thought, this is either the sickest man I've ever met or the most honest man I've ever met. Because men don't tell them things to men. Men protect those things with their lives. He was telling me things that if you cocked a forty-five and stuck it in my ear and gave me two seconds to start talking, I couldn't have said one thing that he was saying voluntarily to a total stranger. And I couldn't figure him out. But he filled my pockets with literature and a meeting schedule, and I went off to find you. The next night, I walked into my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in February 1969. And, no, 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 it's premature, excuse me. <laughs> the reason I paused is that I didn't tell you when I stood up here that my home group is the Fox Hall Group in Bellevue, Nebraska. And through the grace of God, <laughs> an excellent sponsor, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't had a drink since January the 18th of 1971. Now, <laughs> of course I'm not nervous when I do this, Chuck. <laughs> I walked into my first AA meeting in February 69, and I fell in love with the fellowship. Absolutely. You knew people who raised your hands, and those of you who didn't have fallen in love with the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, as I did that night. You see, I had been in all of those service clubs and all of those organizations as a young bank executive, and I knew about joining clubs. And I knew that if you joined a club, you had to fill out some sort of an application, and somebody somewhere, some committee or some individual judged your application based on who you were, where you worked, how much money you had. Some of them, you had to give them financial information. You had to establish your worthwhileness to be in their club. Not in AA. The worse you are, the more we want you in our club. You know? <laughs> The rottener you are, the more you get asked to talk. <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous, the only club in the world, wants bad people in their club. And I walked into this rain dance, and I fell in love with the hugs and the laughter and the, the people who were genuinely interested about me. I heard a Catholic priest named Father Hart tell his story that night. This priest stood up in his priest garb with black suit with a little white dicky and told us immoral, perverted, illegal, terrible things that he had done, and you laughed your butts off at him. I was thinking, a priest can't do that stuff. He's still a priest. He can't tell us he's done that stuff. All we got is call the church. He's out of a job. I mean, this guy stood up there and laughed and made everybody around me was laughing about his immorality and his terrible things he had done as a priest. Old ladies around me were crying. There was a big old guy that looked like Wayne. Sitting across, a real man, you know? Sitting, <laughs> sitting across from me with tears in his eyes, you know? And I'm fighting it back. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to be a wimp, you know? But I couldn't understand what they're laughing about. And after the priest got through, about half the people ran up to thank and hug the priest for sharing with it. The other half of the room was after me, you know? <laughs> Evidently, they hadn't had a newcomer for a while. I mean, I looked up and there's nothing but teeth and hands, you know, all around me. People hugging me and patting me on the back and saying things like, we're so glad you're so young and came to AA and toothless old women want to kiss me and stuff. It's just, 
people shoving literatures and phone numbers and crap in my pocket and just, they're all over me. A couple of guys that I had set between in the meeting, Glenn and Dale, who were to become friends, gaffled me up and saved me. They, they caught me and they took me by the literature rack and we got the big book and we had it for a coffee shop. Went to the coffee shop and they got me in the back corner booth where they could sit on both sides of the newcomer so we couldn't get out, you know? And they started telling me horrible, perverted, unmanly, terrible, illegal things they had done. They got into a who's the worst contest, you know? Only alcoholics get into that. You know, Wayne say something he had done and Donna says, oh, that ain't nothing. He'd tell something worse, you know, and that'd remind Wayne of some worse thing he had done. He'd brag about that, you know. I made up things I hadn't done, just <laughs> trying to fit in with these people. It was awful stuff. They talked about some things they did with farm animals. It was just, oh. I miss a lot of what they said after that, trying to imagine it. But they kept me up till the bars closed, and they had to go home. And I couldn't wait to get to a meeting the next night. And I went to meetings every night. I loved this thing. I hadn't been welcome any place in so long. And so many of you ran up to me and you greeted me so warmly that I knew it wasn't a con. I didn't know what the hell you wanted and why you accepted me so readily. But you did. You did hands-on recovery. You had your arms around me and you had my hand in yours. And you didn't want my wallet or my nomination certificate. You didn't want my address or my job references. You didn't want anything but me. And you told me things like, it's going to be okay. Welcome home. Stick with us. You know, it's for fun and for free. And it's going to be great. And all of this stuff. And I loved it. I was at meetings every night. I, my wife started going to Al-Anon and she got all happy and things got good at home. And, you know, and the big bed was a lot of fun again. And the kids were back in my lap and we're wrestling on the living room floor again. And I'm off to meetings every night and coming home full of AA piss and vinegar. Just, oh boy, it's good now. <laughs> Stopping total strangers, telling them I'm 28 years old, I'm sober and Alcoholics Anonymous, I got that terrible disease, now I'm cured, and I'm just, you know, carrying an AA banner, and I'm just, it's magnificent. And I got drunk. <laughs> I come out of a bar in San Francisco at closing time that I couldn't recall walking into. And I uh, spent the night drinking coffee in San Francisco. The next day, Glenn came over to the house, or Dale came over to the house. Dale had about a few months, 90 days or better, and... The other guy had three years, and he scared me. Dale came over, and I called him. He came over to the house, middle of the afternoon. I've been pacing the house all day long, smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee. Just, will they let me back in AA? Jesus, you know, have I failed this too? You know, kind of a miserable part. I did my inventory again. You know, what a failure I am at everything. I can't even do AA with all these misfits. And just, it was awful. By the, by the time he got over to the house, I was crazy, and I... I figured you had done something wrong, I guess, because he walked in, sat down, I got him a cup of coffee, and I demanded an explanation. <laughs> How did I get drunk? He says, you drank whiskey. <laughs> Why? You're alcoholic. I said, but you don't understand, I love AA. I didn't want to drink, I didn't sit out to drink, I had no reason to drink, nothing happened, I just got struck drunk. And he picked up my copy of this book. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that they had bought me that night was laying on the coffee table where newcomers put their big book <laughs> for all to see. <laughs> and he picked it up and I thought he was going to read to me. He didn't. He just held it, fondled it. And he said to me, in essence, this new person, there's a big difference between the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
The fellowship is all of these meetings and all of this laughter and all of those coffee clutches and those phone calls and those all of that stuff is fellowship. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous exists only in this book. If you read it, if you find it, and if you apply it to yourself, you can have the program of recovery. We can't do it for you. And in essence, he said, we can't do it for you, and we wouldn't, if we could, we wouldn't deny you the journey. Now, to you new people and you slippers and you retreads, people like this sick man who talked last night, <laughs> for the next two years, I was to carry the disease, and I infected many people with it. For the next two years, I was to swing in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous, using it as a social contact using it to seduce newcomer women, using it to borrow money I was to never repay to men, using it to find jobs, using it to get heat off at home, using it until I could use it no more. Using it, I moved to Southern California during that time to uh, Bakersfield, and uh, they were doing it wrong in Bakersfield, you know, but I eventually was to go and hook into some meetings there, and eventually... Even as a slipper, I was to get to know everybody in that community in AA. During short periods of sobriety, they let me lead meetings and be a reader and sometimes be a short speaker. And I've never been afraid of a microphone. I don't know why, but I've just loved attention that they asked me to share. They knew that I would, and I'd get up and do my dance and quote the big book and quote other speakers and, and be entertaining. And then I'd be drunk the next week, and I would come back, and sometimes I would tell them, and sometimes I wouldn't. And... uh I became that perennial slipper that you have in your group that is starting to piss you off. <laughs> I became the guy that sponsors told their babies to stay away from. Stay away from me. He's a loser. He's not walking like he's talking. He's a slipper. Stay away from this Sunday. Even the women passed the word around. You know? <laughs> he can't keep a secret. Stay away. He looks good, but there ain't nothing behind it, you know? Well, I can't get into the details here. It's a general way, right? And uh, it was hideous. I got to that point. You who've been there understand this, and you who are going to be there, and some of you will, may recall this. I got to that point where I wasn't welcome in AA, and I wasn't welcome at the watering hole down the street. I just got to that place where I had no place I belonged. I walk into the bar, and I didn't have my stool, and the bartender didn't know my drink, and the wait my name, and it. They didn't want me on their dart team or their charter bus to the Dodger game because I may be sober next week. They couldn't count on me. And I'd go to AA, and they wouldn't ask me to read, lead the meeting next week or be on the literature committee or to go to the joint because I may be drunk next week. They couldn't count on me. And I would walk into rooms, small rooms, little meeting rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous in this town, and I knew everybody in the room. Everybody. And they no longer stopped and motioned me over to their little clique in the corner where they had the, surrounded a newcomer. They didn't say, hey, Jim, come here, come here, come here, look, Bill's new, watch, he's going to puke again, it'll be fun, watch, you know, <laughs> look at him shake, <laughs> you know. They didn't say, hey, you're going to go to the conference with us? Hey, wasn't that a great meeting last Tuesday? Wasn't Clancy a great speaker? Did you come and hear Chuck? You know, they didn't include me in the conversations because I wasn't there last week and they didn't know if I was going to be there next week. But to me, it seemed like, these clicky bastards, who do they think they are? 
I've been sober since six o'clock this morning as long as anybody in this room. How dare they act like they're better than me? Look at that goofy newcomer up there brown-nosing around the old-timers, you know? New people were coming in behind me and getting well, you know? Wearing neckties to meetings and strutting around. They got their wife by the hand. She's all happy, and I just hated them. God, I hated people who recovered, you know? Because my... And I heard speakers that seemed like they had drank for 300 years. They had all but died. And they came to AA... And everything got wonderful. Their wife was back in love with them, and the kids were in college and becoming doctors and lawyers. A million dollars had jumped into their pocket. They'd been promoted at work, and it was magnificent. AA was wonderful. And my rent was past due. And I had a low tire and a flat spare. I had just gotten a job selling cars in a 108-degree temperature, you know? I hated my wife, and I, the kids made me nervous, and I'd sit in the AA meetings and listen to this wonderfulness, and I just want to kill things. I got where I couldn't drink. I knew drinking was killing me, and I couldn't stand AA, and I'd walk around the meetings stiff-legged. You know, where you just double up your fists till you make them little marks in your palm with your fingernails, you know? Put your teeth together, and you don't drink no matter what. <laughs> you ever do that? I'm not going to drink today, goddammit. Ah, you know? People walk up to you, how you doing, Jim? Fine! <laughs> I did that for like six months. Something like that. Just so intense, if you had to touch me, I'd just exploded all over the room. One day in January, early in January 71, I just had to drink or die. Now, I could have surrendered, but I didn't know that I hadn't. And neither do you if you knew. I didn't know that I hadn't surrendered. That day I drank. I went to lunch from my now prestigious job selling TV sets at Montgomery Ward. <clears throat> I went to the bowling alley across the street to have a sandwich. I walked right past the cafe and into the bar and ordered a martini. And I thought about AA just for a second before I drank it. I knew that this was wrong. I got the serenity prayer down to the two-word version. And uh, drank the martini. Now that you've had a martini, you might as well have another martini. you got 45 minutes before you got to go back to work, and I had another one. And then, of course, the martinis had to have a martini. And I came to several days later in Honolulu, Hawaii. Looking at you. you ever look out through the window trying to figure out where you are? Palm trees. Shit. Well, uh, uh. Now, that sounds romantic and funny that I was in Hawaii, but it's not romantic and funny that I ripped off, wiped out my dead mother's estate to make that trip, and I spent most of it going there, and I can't recall it. I did not have fun in Hawaii, because I can't remember what I did in Hawaii, but I came to a little room a stone's throw from Waikiki Beach, naked, bleeding, puking, jackknifing around this little room, full of empties and soiled clothes and hideousness. It might as well have been a motel in Encino. Springfield, <laughs> any place. You know, it was a room where I had my last drunk. And something happened because I'd been in that room for days and I couldn't recall 98% of it and I just, I was just crazy and I, I figured out where I was. I was now filled with remorse. How the hell do I get home with what's left of this money? What do I tell people? What do I tell that wife? She's not going to have anything to do with me now. For Christ's sakes, I'm in goddamn Hawaii. You know? This isn't coming home at 2.30. 
in the morning. You have really screwed up now, you know. How am I going to go back and make this right? But something happened for me in that little room. Without my permission, without my request, without my knowledge, I surrendered in that room. I gave it up. Something, it wasn't a moment of clarity that I recall. It was just, I can't do this anymore. I can't go on like this. I didn't know what else to do but to come back to this stupid AA. And that's the way I felt about it. That stupid G-D-A-A and that stupid clubhouse and that stupid town with those idiots I wouldn't even drink with. At least they're sober. Some of them. And I came back to AA. Sick. Sorry. Ashamed. High and terribly in debt. And I walked into that hall and they didn't greet me warmly. They didn't say, you done drinking? They didn't even talk to me. So I went and asked this old son of a bitch to be my sponsor. I'd never had a sponsor. I'd never, never, I'd never taken a step and I'd never taken a commitment seriously. And I got this sponsor. And this sponsor was the meanest SOB in the valley. He only went to one meeting a week, but he sent me to seven. <laughs> he made me sit in a certain chair at every meeting. I had to sit in a certain chair at a meeting he wouldn't he didn't even go to. But somehow he knew if I wasn't in that chair. <clears throat> I said, why do I have to sit in that chair? He says, because I said for you to sit in that chair. Shut up. You know, stuff like that. He told me things to do were in the big book. I'd go home and look in the big book. Where in the hell does it say i got to call him every day, you know? At 10.30 a.m. Where does it say I have to go to meetings every night? What about my family? What about your family while you were in Hawaii? Well, what about my job? Well, what about your job while you were in Hawaii? You know, just, he didn't care about anything. He just wanted to be mean to me. And I sat in them meetings, and I called him every day. And he gave me actions to take that he wasn't taking, and I took those actions, and I got better. I looked up one day, and they were singing happy birthday to me. They got me this stupid cake that had palm trees all over it. You know? <laughs> He kept me sober, just kept me busy. And somehow he had that that thing they learn in sponsor school somewhere. <laughs> this mental telepathy that knows when I have been misbehaving. No matter how I avoided telling him about this little incident, I walk into his office, and within five minutes he was talking about that incident. Not Oh, you were over at Betty Lou's the other night, 13th stepping, weren't you? He would just start talking to me about how uncomfortable he felt when he was an adulterer. Hmm. People snitched on me, I think. I outgrew Bill. Because, uh, as Gary talked about last night, Don, somebody talked about, I did things he wasn't doing. And another guy came, got out of prison, came to town. It's funny how we were attracted to <laughs> convicts. It's our higher powers. But <laughs> this guy moved into town. He talked about the steps and God like it was his best friend. And he was a stepper and a 12 and 12 freak. And I asked him to be my sponsor and went on. And he took me through the steps. And if you're new, you must understand that we understand that you know the steps won't work. We know you're convinced of that. We know you've looked at them. You've heard them read at you time and time again in these meetings. Every goddamn week they read something you all got memorized. Don't know why they keep reading it. We all know it. 
We all know when somebody leaves a word out, you know. We got this thing memorized, but they insist on reading it every week. We know that you know that they won't work. We know that some of you can prove they won't work. We know that you know that your doctor or your therapist or your treatment center said, well, you don't work it quite that way. You change this and you change that. But we know they work. And it's important that you believe us. It's only important that you do it if you want what we have. You see, I was convinced they wouldn't work. I looked at them steps. I was interested listen to Diane read chapter 5 earlier and the way she hit that little paragraph after the steps many of us exclaimed what in order I can't go through with it how many of you looked at those steps and said that you didn't say that if you're alcoholic you said you gotta be out of your goddamn mind you think I'm gonna do this you know I ain't gonna do this part of me new person Listen to these old-timers with their, their hideous drinking stories and compare their stories to mine. And some of these guys, you know, had drank for so long and had done such dastardly deeds, they certainly need all 12 steps. <laughs> but I'm a sissy alcoholic. One little drunk driving, you know. Still had my wife and kids, and I came to AA, as I was telling them last night, I came to AA dressed like this. I'm a high-bottom drunk. I'm a silk-sheet drunk. If that old son of a bitch needs 12 steps to stay sober, then a sissy like me needs a step or two. Because I didn't drink like he drank. I didn't drink as long as he drank, as much as he drank, and I didn't do the terrible things he did. So why should I have to work all 12 steps? I can read them, skip around in them, probably apply some of them to me. You know, I don't need to do them all. Why, if I've got a hangnail, I don't put a cast on my whole arm just to be sure. Let's treat the problem to its degree of illness, you know. So I didn't do them all. When Joe, my second sponsor, found out about that, he made me do them all. Even sissy alcoholic, I had to do them all. And I looked at them and I couldn't find any reason to do them all. Nothing in there applied to my daily life. Nothing. There was nothing in there about which step you take, because your wife is frigid. Which step do I take for real career guidance? Should I continue selling cars or should I get back into banking? Which step will tell me that? Which step will make my daughter stop smoking marijuana with that Mexican gang she's running around with? Which step do I take for that? Which step do I take? It's 108. I'm standing on an asphalt parking lot in Bakersfield, California, burning my feet, talking to some guy who's jacking me around, ain't going to buy this sled, just wasting my time. Which step do I take to keep from killing this SOB? Which step do I tell the landlord about so he don't, so I can be a late, week late on the rent? What step applies? And I didn't understand they all apply. I didn't understand that if I took the steps, I would change my actions and my feelings and my values so that I didn't have to be an adulterer. So that I could do whatever job I wanted to do and feel good about it. So that I could be good to my kids, whether they were good to me or not. If I took those steps, I would change from the inside out. And I didn't understand it. But I had a sponsor who didn't care if I liked him or not. He cared that I survived. And he was willing to jeopardize my friendship so that I may live and grow in this thing. And he was adamant about it. And I was, I was terribly, terribly sick in those New Years, and I'm not so sure I'm cured. 
<laughs> but I was horribly hooked into a particular area of sexual perversions and, and that sort of thing. Girly magazines and smut and stuff. And I used to go to Joe and I said, Jesus, what are we going to do about this? I, had, I was still sleeping around. It was awful. It was just, and I'd just say, what am I supposed to do when I get, you know, obsessed? Am I supposed to call you and we go drink coffee and you talk me out of it? And uh, he'd say, well, have you made those amends yet? I said, well, no, I, I'm trying to save up the money, you know. He said, why don't you send him this one outfit I've stole, like, you know, over a long period of time. He said, she stole it in pieces. Why don't you pay it back in pieces? Send him $10 a week. And I'd go to him whining about some girl that I was involved with or some porno movie that I couldn't stay out of. And I'd say, Jesus, I just feel horrible. What am I going to do? Jesus, it's making me crazy. He said, why don't you send the $10 to that company up north? I said, what's that got to do with anything? He said, send the $10. We'll talk about it later. So I'd send the ten dollars and I'd forgotten about it, you know, and I'd make up some new problem and I'd whine to him. He said, Well, give Jim a ride home. He hasn't got a car. What the hell's that gonna do with my wife not being a good lover? Just give him a ride home, we'll talk about it tomorrow. Meet me at the meet. Every time I took my what seeming to be my immediate problem to him, he would give me some AA action to take. I said, This guy is gonna I'm gonna kill him. And <laughs> One day I was standing in a liquor store, I was four or five, six, seven years old, I was standing in a liquor store buying some cigarettes. I looked down and all of the girly magazines were laying there and I suddenly realized I hadn't bought one in six months, seven months. How'd that happen? When did I decide I didn't need to buy those things? When did that obsession pass away? It just I just walked out of that, that store just in a daze and went down Joe and told him about it. He just said, good for you. Now, Fred doesn't have any place to sleep tonight. <laughs> He's going to sleep on your couch for two days. That's all. And then I said, but Joe, look. He says, I know. Chuck here, they, uh, they talked about last night, took his fifth step last Friday on the way up here to the conference. When I took my fifth step new person, I don't know what Chuck experienced. I didn't get a chance to talk to him, but who wants to hear his dribble? Uh <laughs> When I took my fifth step, new person, I was all set for bugles and claps of thunder and loud voices from the heavens saying, good boy, Jimmy, now you're on the road, you know. I took my fifth step like Chuck with tears in my eyes. I read this litany of good and bad and indifference about Jim Beam and I exposed it all to my sponsor. And we got all through and on the way back we, we drove until I was through and then we turned around and drove back to town. And I thought, now, on the way back he's going to tell me what a good AA I am and, you know, on and on. So he starts talking about, you hear the car make that funny noise? Yeah. I wonder what they think that's a tap it, tap it, or what is that, you know? What's losing? Maybe we should get some oil, I'm thinking. I just took my damn inventory. And he's talking about the car. Yeah. I didn't feel like some great weight had been lifted off me. I heard the speaker say, felt like he'd put down a 200 pound pack he'd been carrying for 20 years. I didn't feel like that. I felt kind of worse. <laughs> Kind of like when you put on the brakes and there aren't any, it seems like the car goes faster. Yeah. I expected something and it didn't happen and I felt a hollow place in me. I have just dumped all of this guy and all this stuff on this ex-convict who I don't know if he's going to keep it a secret or not. Well, why don't I feel warm and wonderful? And uh, you go ahead, we'll get our coffee later. Uh, <clears throat> when we got home and that night we took the... He opened up the 12 and 12, and he says, Now we'll take the step that separates the men from the boys. And I had been like 
Gary, I had waited for years to take the, the fourth step. And then he showed me how the sixth step was going to kick my butt. You know? And then those amend steps. And I did all those steps. I did them to the very best of my ability. And I reviewed them last year and found one amend that I hadn't made for the last 20 years. And I made that amend. And it was well received. And now I'm warm and wonderful. And life has just been successful ever since. You know? <laughs> I am glad that I took those steps. I am glad that I didn't work them. I took them. I took them to the very best of my ability. I took the three acceptance steps. I did the six action steps. And then I started working the three maintenance steps at the end in my life on a daily basis. And my life got good. Reality didn't stop. And reality hurts. And I was to divorce my first wife. And, uh, and my second marriage ended in disaster. And I've had a dozen career changes. I've done a geographic in sobriety. But I've also been to the pinnacles of success in AA. I've had newcomers read their fifth step to me and cry, and I've held them in my arms, and I've held countless drunks before, uh, when 12-step calls were going out and sitting with a drunk rather than driving them to a treatment center. And I'm not putting down treatment centers. Bill Wilson was in treatment. He talks about it in the big book. He was hospitalized several times to detox. Treatment has taken on a little different connotation today, but it's no different, really. It's helping drunks live. I've never been to a treatment center, but in the old days, we'd put them in our living room. I had to get a garbage can one time because this guy couldn't hit the waste can. He was shaking so bad, you know. I stuck his head in a garbage can, and he puked in the garbage can, and I'd pull him out and hold him for a while until he started puking, and I'd stick his head back in the garbage can, you know. <laughs> I've served in every capacity. I've folded a jillion chairs. I've washed a million ashtrays. I've cooked... Uh, how many gallons of coffee over the last 20 years? I've served as GSR and alternate and H&I and got involved in convention work. I've helped put on conferences like this many times. I served as general chairman of the Southern California Convention several years ago. I've done every activity I've heard of in Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank God that I had sponsors who suggested I do those things, that I get into service. And washing, washing ashtrays is a service, whether you know that or not. It's a benefit to others. Turning on the lights. Turn them on off and on during the speaker. <laughs> Gives him fodder to use from the podium. Uh, coming to conferences like this and feeling your acceptance and your warmth and your love is a cynical of success to me. My heart overflows with this stuff. But also in sobriety, I've had heart attacks and open heart surgery and nearly died on the operating table. I've had two divorces. I had my daughter go through a pregnancy and abortion when I was relatively new and it tore me up. I wanted to kill the guy who had raped her, statutory rape, and my sponsor wouldn't let me maybe pray for him, you know. Have God give everything I wanted for me and my family, give it to this goof, you know, and I wanted to kill him. He wouldn't let me do that. He made me pray for this boy. And, and I did that. He came to really mean those prayers. Because my daughter turned out fine, and I turned out fine, and my wife got through it okay, and, and everything turned out all right. It doesn't, uh, membership in this organization, I do not believe we are God's chosen few. I don't believe that for a second. I don't believe that that entire world out there is not, you know, doesn't have the same God I have found in here. They didn't have to get as sick as I had to get to come in here, to surrender, to open my heart to the God who found me and came into me. And that God is with me so long as I will let him in. 
But you see, over my checkered period of sobriety, I am from time to time so self-centered that I make decisions based on self, which later placed me in a position to be hurt, and sometimes I also hurt other people. And it wasn't my intention to do that. I just got in my own head and made a decision that I didn't even know was was a selfish one. I'm I'm an expert at taking a bad motive and camouflaging it with a good one so that I don't even know that I'm screwing somebody. And later the sponsor peels it off and says, ah, <laughs> you know. And then I have to regroup and go make my amends. We were talking about amends this morning at breakfast. And I, I made my amends and I... I didn't make amends so that they would like me. I hear people sit in AA meetings and say some of the most most misinformed stuff. Go around and say, I'm sorry to all these people. They don't want to hear, I'm sorry. They know how sorry I am. You know? All I do is I admit I was wrong. For these reasons, I was wrong. And this is what I can do to, to make it right. Or, unfortunately, I can do nothing to make that right, because I can't take back words I said or actions that I did. But I will attempt not to do that to you or to others again. I regret my actions. If it's money, I pay back the exact dollar amount. Whether they like me or not is not important. It's important that I like me. It's important that I learn through these steps that I must conduct my affairs in a fashion which is acceptable to me. There is no clearer conscience, no softer pillow than a clear conscience. And when I apply these maintenance steps to me in my daily affairs, I sleep like a baby. And it don't matter to me how much coffee I drink at an AA meeting. I'm capable of 40 cups a day. I've counted them, you know. <laughs> my bladder don't like it, but my head don't mind it a bit. Coffee don't keep me awake. My actions for the last day or 24 hours or 72 hours of the last week keep me awake. Yeah. <laughs> All night, some nights, you know. I have no idea what time it is or what I've said. But I'll get us out of here and meet to that airport and that rickety aircraft <laughs> in a couple minutes somehow. The 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous have brought me into manhood. The 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous demand that I am responsible for my own actions, and that's what manhood is all about. I looked around when I was a kid at fathers and older brothers and other men, and they had beards and tattoos and gun racks and pickup trucks, and they smoked cigars, and they cussed, and they used women, and they murdered Bambi every year, and they just, you know, <clears throat> they were men, they were Marines, they were rough and tough, you know, and going gets rough, the rough get going, or some shit like that, I don't know. Yeah. But I still cry at sad movies, and I bake the best pineapple upside down cake in Bellevue, Nebraska, you know, and I, I'm a wimp, I don't have a tattoo, and I just, how can I be a man at 148 pounds? Growing this beard ain't gonna do it, that's a joke. It's just something I've never done, I thought I'd try to do for the hell of it. You taught me what manhood and ladyhood is all about. That's being honest with myself and with you. It's doing what I said I would do. If I borrow money from the finance company, I make the payments on time as I promised them I would. If I work for company A, they say, we'll pay you X number of dollars if you'll do these actions. My responsibility is to do those actions. Whether the boss is a jerk, whether it's cold or hot, whether it's whatever, whether I feel good or not, is to go do those actions so I can get that money. 
If I don't do those actions and I take that money, I can't sleep at night. It isn't the coffee. It's the fact I took a 40-minute break instead of a 20-minute break this morning. Because the other guys didn't get up. It wasn't my fault. They were all sitting around. You know? My head knows, because you taught me. Don't steal. Don't take something that doesn't belong to you, and the boss's money doesn't belong to me until I earn it. And if I'm going to say to some woman, I'm going to put you ahead of all others, and I'm not going to sleep around. I'm going to be married to you, or I'm not, or whatever, some committed involvement. Uh, then i got to do what I say I'm going to do. And if I'm not going to do that, I'm responsible to go to her and say for up front, I can't do this anymore. I want a date. I want to move to Nebraska. I want to do something. Don't do it first and then apologize for it later. I've got to follow my sponsor's direction. You know what, newcomer? We know that you know it's easy to get your, easier to get your sponsor's forgiveness than to get his permission. <laughs> but what I got to do is share with him. I got to be sponsored. Not just have a sponsor. Just half of AA has a sponsor. Don't know what sponsorship is all about. I know that from them talking to me. Oh, yeah, I got a sponsor. I think his name's Bob. Yeah. <laughs> I am sponsored today. An active, hands-on sponsorship. And I sponsor the same way. The guys who asked me to sponsor better tie a knot in the end of the rope and hang on. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this big book, and I'll try and get out of here with it. This is the first 90 pages of the book of Alcoholics Anonymous I'm holding up. Many, many people pick up this big book, lay it on the coffee table, and never read it because it's so big. It has no pictures, has no plot. <laughs> Textbooks don't have plots, you know. This is a textbook, a study book. But many of us don't read it because it's so big and foreboding. It's like gone with the wind. Got too many pages. Can't, you know, I can't comprehend something that big. The recovery part of this book is about the size of Zane Gray Western. Some 98 pages apply to you, newcomer, and to me as a newcomer, and to me and my daily recovery. Some 90 pages that I could read every night if I was that disciplined. These few pages right here altered my life for over 20 years and have made my life better and the people around me's life better for 20 years. Some 90 pages on printed paper in a book called Alcoholics Anonymous from a fellowship called by the same name. Made up of people like us, the misfits and the outcasts of the world, who come to these rooms and love each each other back. To life, to purpose, to reality. And stand with each other and, and walk this path. You can't get what we got by sitting in an AA meeting. My first sponsor was wrong to make me go to seven meetings a week without telling me to do what they did. You can't get this thing by sitting in an AA meeting any more than you can become a chicken by sitting in a chicken coop. You can't get drunk by sitting between two drinkers in a bar unless you do what they're doing. If you want what we have, new person, then we know you think you can't have it. But if you will do these things while involved in this fellowship, you will have people who will help you do these things with their experience, strength, and hope. So that you can walk around a free man. I haven't had a drink in over 20 years. But I can still become a prisoner to lust, greed, envy, sloth, and pride. 
can become a prisoner just instantly someday. And these principles applied in my life take those obsessions and push them back to memory, push them back to just things that exist, things that are the luxuries of so-called normal men, and allow me to walk around with dignity and grace, allow me to come to Springfield, Missouri, and share with you, because in doing that, I get to go another day without booze without harming myself or harming another person. I'm glad you had a good conference. I'm glad I was a part of it. I hope you have an even better one next year. Thank you very much.